let's begin our teaching time with just a word of prayer and commit our time to the Lord, shall we? Our Father, we thank you so much for uh, this group of women and so thankful for the food that you've provided and all the diligent and gentle hands that prepared the meal. We thank you for uh, each, each lady who served here today. We thank you for the great conversations around the table, and we thank you most of all uh, for the time that we get to spend this afternoon in your word. We thank you for the clarity that your word brings, the confidence and deep conviction, and we pray that those aspects of your word to strengthen and encourage would be so evident today in what we cover. I pray that every woman here would be greatly, deeply encouraged, uh, overjoyed in relishing her role as a woman of God. We commit the time to you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I want to thank you first of all for inviting me. It's a real privilege and an honor to uh, stand before you and address you on this vital subject. Uh, I'm entitling this message, God's High Calling for Women. And I thought it was funny as Maggie was talking about what to say in introducing me, I thought, well, I want you all to know that I'm married to a woman, so I know something about women. I have five kids and two of them are daughters, so that helps me a little bit. My background in military and law enforcement doesn't really prepare me to address the subject of God's high calling for women, unless you all get quite rowdy today, then, I'll, then I can pull out some of those skills. But what qualifies me to speak to you, what qualifies anybody to speak to anybody about anything, is what God's word has to say. And the Bible does have a lot to say to women and about women and womanhood. So this message this afternoon is going to be a, a very basic message, I think, Probably, if you know your Bible at all, you're going to find so much of what I say to be very familiar. Not anything new, not anything revolutionary, except if you are of this current world, uh, this, what the Bible has to say, is absolutely and radically revolutionary. It disrupts everything that's going on in this world, and yet we find that the subversion of God's word to a current world actually writes the ship and puts us all on a solid foundation. Hopefully though, as this is, well, we'll call this our first annual women's luncheon, perhaps we can cover some other topics in the coming years of interest to women and women's issues. I wanna start by acknowledging what I think we all know to be true, uh, that there are many models of womanhood out there today. Uh, many models exist, and we'll say from the start that if the model of what it means to be a woman doesn't come from God's word, it's false. It is a model of pseudo-womanhood. Models of pseudo-womanhood have been pushed on women all throughout time and history, but today's version encourages women and affirms them to follow their feelings, and those feelings for them masquerades as truth. Today's model of pseudo-womanhood encourages women to pursue folly, and distraction, and entertainment, and that masquerades as wisdom for them. Today's model of pseudo-womanhood encourages women to demand so-called justice for sinners, whether they're subtle, soft sinners, or blatant and hardcore sinners, all of them masquerading as victims. That's not God's high calling for women. 
God's high calling for women is a woman be dignified. Women whose outward appearance and manner of living manifests and adorns the truth of God in their life through a life of godly action, godly behavior, godly speech. God would have women to be diligent students who are in pursuit of truth, zealous lovers of wisdom, teachers of wisdom, those who advocate for justice and mercy in the world that they live in. By God's original design and by God's redeeming grace, this high calling for women that the Bible describes and advocates for is available to all women, to all women who are willing to repent of their own sins and turn away from all the alluring deceptions of the world and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, following him in loving and faithful obedience. There are so many good examples that women can follow in scripture. And I know you're familiar with them. Women like Sarah, Ruth, just read the book of Ruth this week in my Bible reading, as we're doing that together as a church, so precious. Women like Hannah, uh, Abigail, there are young women in scripture such as Mary, the mother of Jesus, and older women such as the more mature cousin, Elizabeth, Anna the prophetess, Phoebe, Tabitha, Priscilla, many, many others in scripture all highlighted as examples of faithful womanhood. Sadly though, I think many women today, and I'm afraid that that's even evangelical women today, that are either unfamiliar with what God has designed them to be and called them to do, or they're unwilling to follow their design. Perhaps that's due to ignorance, ignorance of the word of God. Perhaps that's due to pressures that they felt or examples that have put before them, both outside and even inside the church, bad examples of what it means to be a woman are put before women. So there are many women who've tried to follow false models of womanhood, and they find an unsatisfying and frustrating form of this pseudo womanhood. And it's really not about women being women. It's about them pursuing a counterfeit where women are ultimately rejecting their own design and trying to be more like men. That is not God's high calling for women, but this is what's advocated in society at large. It's taught in so many of our schools. It's enforced in the workplace, championed in politics. This is what our young people who are growing up in the world will know as the social and cultural norm where women reject true womanhood in preference to be more like a man in the world. Some women, probably like many of you women, are under no illusions about this modern pseudo form of womanhood. You love God, you love his word, you love what you see taught, explained, and reinforced in the Bible about what it means to be a woman, about true femininity. Perhaps though, you feel a little bit out of place in this world. Perhaps you could use a little bit of reinforcement, bringing in the heavy guns from scripture to solidify your position. Perhaps you need a little encouragement. Or maybe you are watching as your daughters or your granddaughters are being raised in this world and they're under these social pressures and influences. And so you have a good and righteous concern to strengthen your daughters and granddaughters against the power of modern enculturation against the world's discipleship to help your daughters and granddaughters to stand bold and strong and so that they relish and rejoice in God's gift of femininity. Whatever way you could use some encouragement this afternoon, I, I hope to serve God's purposes in providing that for you through God's word. If you're a note taker, I've got three 
points for you, just a little way to organize the, the material. And here is the first one for this afternoon. Number one, women, I'm addressing you as women by saying that, women, comma, God created you with a unique design. God created you with a unique design. I hope you've brought your Bibles with you. Uh, maybe you have one on your phone if you don't have a print version, but uh, you can turn to the opening pages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1 uh, to see this point illustrated that God created you with a unique design. In Genesis 1, and starting in verse 26, this is the sixth day of creation. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed or with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. What God created and designed and blessed as very good, the modern world has cursed, attempted to redesign, and then even uncreate as something that they hate and despise as evil the path of our modern rebellion. Paul traced that out a long time ago in what he wrote in Romans 1, 18 to 32. We see there that God hands sinful people over to the consequences of their idolatry. First, we see in Romans 1, verses 24 and following, we see he hands them over to sexual immorality and its consequences like divorce, like the breakdown of the family, like abortion. These are definitely issues that pertain to woman, that disrupt womanhood. Then we see, continuing on, if people don't repent of their sin in Romans chapter 1, as God hands them over to sexual immorality and all of its consequences, he then hands them over to a next stage of consequence, which is homosexual immorality, and all the consequences that attend to homosexuality, like polarization and disruption of society, like physical effects of that, more sadness in gay homes, lesbian homes, where people try to pretend to be married, raise families. Finally, if people don't repent, God hands them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not proper. And that's where we are today in America. The obvious example, very easy target, is the transgender movement in which some depraved and perverted men They dab on some hideous makeup, put on garish outfits, masquerading as a woman. If you're like any of the women that I know, they're offended by these so-called drag queens who caricature the very worst of women, like a kind of like a cartoon prostitute. They're not only ridiculous and hideous, they're absolutely offensive. This is not womanhood, what they're representing. It's an offensive counterfeit. 
So when the transgender movement advocates for men who masquerade as women, having, having them compete in women's sporting events, I think thoughtful women everywhere see the harm and the violence done to women, done to girls, suppressing women, sidelining women, dismissing them. When these deviants are even allowed to enter into women's locker rooms or the changing rooms of our daughters and granddaughters, there's a problem, isn't it? The perversion of transgenderism. I know it's obvious to us all, but when we stop and ask, how did this happen? All of a sudden, just came upon us, entering into the society and the culture as if it's always been there, as if it's always been affirmed. Much of the world around us accepts this movement as having legitimacy and listens to what these people have to say. And we are absolutely puzzled, perplexed, bewildered as to how this came about. We shouldn't be. If we've been watching the erosion of biblical Christianity in our time, we see how this happened. We don't have time to trace the entire decline of Western civilization this afternoon. I know there are many factors involved. There are several streams of influence, but I think we can lay a significant degree of blame at the feet of the feminist movement. As I've seen, anyway, there are four waves of feminism. The first is what's known as first wave feminism, mostly about women's suffrage, women voting. We can argue about the merits of that. But this is more about the second, third, and fourth wave feminism as we've watched the encroachment of immorality setting the agenda for how women think. The attempt is ostensibly to liberate women from what they see as the liabilities of being a woman, namely, that they can become pregnant in sexual activity. So women want to take away that possibility of becoming pregnant and equal the playing field. By rejecting the so-called liabilities of womanhood, that is pregnancy, raising children, nurturing compassionate nature, women have been unwittingly rejecting the most precious gifts of womanhood. It's exactly those things that make a woman joyful, fulfilled, rejoicing in God's design. And that's become something of a liability to today's modern woman. And what's becoming abundantly and tragically clear to us today, women are tacitly saying we want to be more like what? Like men. Like men. Women have been deceived into thinking that their femininity is a liability to be rejected, to be subdued, to be suppressed, to be set aside, to be mitigated, rather than seeing their femininity as a gift from God. To be received with great humility, to be relished with a deep contentment and rejoiced in with a profound gratitude. And that's what I hope to help you recover from God's word in the time we have together today. And if not you needing to recover this for yourself, maybe just to clarify some thoughts for you in order that you can teach this, as I said, to your daughters and granddaughters to help them recover what true femininity is. I just want to give as an example, how many of you have heard the name Sheryl Sandberg? Anybody of you heard that name? Just a few of you. Interesting. Miss Sandberg is probably one of the most admired women in America. And I'm very thankful that few of you have raised your hands. But um, she is upheld as an example to many young women of what it means to be a woman today. It was back in 2004 that a young Harvard student by the name of Mark Zuckerberg, anybody heard that name? 
Okay, better. Better turnout there. Mark Zuckerberg invented, co-founded a little website called Facebook, and that little website turned into a social media giant, and its rapid growth meant he was going to need a lot of help in building his company and his empire. And so in 2007, when Mark Zuckerberg met Sheryl Sandberg, he was immediately impressed with her intellect, with her competency. She'd made somewhat of a name for herself over at Google. And so Zuckerberg offered her the role of COO at Facebook, Chief Operating Officer. So Ms. Sandberg spearheaded Facebook's monetization initiative. She started placing ads on Facebook's web pages, and by 2010, Facebook was one of the most valuable properties on the internet. And as that company, Facebook, rose in prominence, so did Sheryl Sandberg. In 2012, she joined Facebook's board of directors, and in 2014, her net worth was over a billion dollars. That's billion with a B. In 2013, Kind of at the height of her notoriety, Ms. Sandberg authored a best-selling book called Lean In, Women, Work, and the Will to Lead. Women, Work, and the Will to Lead. And she was calling for a radical egalitarianism that reordered male and female roles. She described this as her ideal world. She said, a better world in which, quote, women ran half of our countries and companies and men ran half our homes. So she wants to flip things around and level the playing field. Lean In has become something of a Bible for young feminists, basically a feminist manifesto that encourages women to really embrace male-like ambition, coaches them to foster more of a male mentality, which is practical, can-do, task-oriented, She says, draw up a chair, throw your shoulders back, ask for a raise, wean off of people pleasing and claim your seat at the table. Feminine impulses, by contrast, those those impulses to bear and raise children, to nurture and care for them, to create beauty, warmth, show hospitality, love a husband, those traits are liabilities in the workplace. So leave them at home with the kids and the babysitter, by the way. The trouble is, Ms. Sandberg and her fellow feminists have found themselves butting up against an invisible barrier, which is proving to them to be stubborn and absolutely immovable. She doesn't really know it yet, as far as I can tell, but the barrier that she's banging her head against is none other than God's original design for women. In her book, Lean In, Ms. Sandberg cites an undeniable national trend. She says highly trained women are scaling back and dropping out of the workplace in high numbers. To her dismay, she says they want to be stay-at-home mothers and volunteers. And then with some surprise, she says, like my mom. Sandberg quotes one of her feminist heroines, Judith Roden, who's president of the Rockefeller Foundation, and she expresses a similar lament. She says, my generation fought so hard to give you all choices. We believe in choices, but choosing to leave the workforce was not the choice we thought so many of you would make. What Roden, Sandberg, and others are finding out, given the choice, most women want to be, well, women. They like having babies. They like being married. 
They like having a husband and raising children. They don't like being tied to a job. They don't like being submissive to some other boss and achieving his goals or his impersonal goals. They like donating their time and volunteering and giving their time, talents to serve causes that they find meaningful. What Ms. Sandberg will continue to face and what she admits in her book, her greatest obstacle in trying to get women to abandon their traditional roles is in the very fact that every baby girl is born with God's design stamped on her image as a woman, programmed into her. It's part of her DNA. For every girl growing up, for every woman she can convince to enter into the workforce, for every woman she wants to groom for political and corporate leadership, Ms. Sandberg is finding herself fighting with frustration against God's design. And we know, biblically, she will not win. Her public presentations, she's got millions of views on her uh, YouTube videos and TED Talks and things like that. But you find that those presentations, what's written in her book, they are replete with evidence that God has designed women not to be leaders, but to be helpmeets. Sandberg provides statistic and anecdotal evidence showing how women, herself included, she says they don't feel natural in positions of leadership. They're not comfortable asserting themselves as leaders. They don't feel natural competing with men. Not only that, but they value security and stability. They tend to be risk averse. Women tend to pull back when she feels as though they should be leaning in. Even when women do ascend into positions of power, they find themselves distracted by maternal longings. It's not only the routine biological issues that women deal with, but you know, including when they get pregnant on an 18-month interruption after childbirth, but they find women find themselves constantly, they sense this internal tension between serving their career on the one hand and then being home with their children where their heart is on the other. We find Miss Sandberg at least was honest in describing her own feelings of guilt, heart pain. It's actually tragic actually to read but she had to peel her three-year-old daughter away from her leg when the little girl was clinging to her and crying, mommy, don't go, crying. What I would love to say to Miss Sandberg, I may never be able to say to her, but I have the joy and privilege of saying it to you. God did not design you to climb corporate ladders. God didn't design you to become helpmeets of some short-lived political goal or corporate ambition or temporal project, or bottom line profit, we can see here in Genesis 1.26, look again at the text, God said, let us make man in our image and let them rule. Let them rule. Man in the singular refers to mankind. Mankind is made in the image of God. But then God uses the plural when he speaks of their co-regency, which refers to the man and the woman who are ruling together over the created world. The first couple here are presented in this opening statement as co-equals, as partners together. They are working together as a team. And then in verse 27, we see God distinguish the them. God created man, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. What's that a reference to? Mankind. And then it says, male and female, he created them, plural. Breaks it out into two sexes, male and female. And we see only two sexes, by the way. There is no plus at the end of that sentence. Both persons are image bearers of God. 
each one capable of representing God's communicable attributes, his righteousness, his patience, his love. They're created to reflect his glory in that way by reflecting, communicating his attributes. Not only that, but each one of these instantiations of humanity, that is a man and a woman, each one of them has the rational ability to know God's incommunicable attributes as well. That is the great mystery of who our God is. In his self-existence, his immutability, his infinity, his eternity, his omniscience, his aseity, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, So many things about our God that we find absolutely bewildering and perplexing, fundamentally incomprehensible, and yet we're able to apprehend some of these things, male and female alike. God designed women to be worshipers along with men. As image bearers, they possess rationality. They possess an ability to learn and understand and apprehend the truth and even comprehend a great bit of it along with their male counterparts. Bearing God's communicable attributes Apprehending the greatness of his incommunicable attributes, men and women together share in the intellectual and the emotional capacity to worship God in all of his glory and all of his splendor. They are co-equal, divine image bearers, and God has assigned to them a task to fulfill together. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and then have dominion over the animals. Men and women aren't only equal by virtue of being image bearers, they're also equal in their God-given task to exercise joint dominion over the earth. They're to rule together as co-regents over all creation, exercising together a delegated authority from God. And obviously, cooperation is implied. There is no fruitfulness or fruit-bearing or having children without a man and a woman. They must come together in order to do what God has called them, designed them, created them to do. That creates, should create a mutual respect, mutual admiration, appreciation, love, men and women being equals in every way, and each of them having a complementary relationship to the other. They're different, obviously, male and female. That's an initial clue in signaling the difference in role and function. Two kinds of image bearers created as equals and yet designed uniquely, designed for different roles, different purposes. So ruling together as co-regents requires of them an interdependency with one another. And that's what we see when we turn the page into Genesis chapter 2, which brings us to a second point. I want to say this, women, number two, God designed you for a special purpose. God designed you for a special purpose. So first we said God created you with a unique design, and now we see that God designed you for a special purpose. If we put this simply, plainly, biblically, the woman's role and purpose is to be a helpmeet. To be a helpmeet. All women, married or unmarried, God has designed you to be helpmeets. God put those qualities of a helpmeet in you, gave you those instincts, And he wants you to employ them in whatever role you have in life, no matter what it is, no matter if you're married or unmarried, no matter if you have children or don't have children, this is your unique design and role. I want to stop for a moment to define that word helpmeet. Sometimes it's 
not clearly understood, but if we look ahead to Genesis 2.18 and notice the word helper, maybe in, Genesis, in your text, uh, your translation, there's some equivalent term, but that's where the word helpmeet comes from is in Genesis 2.18, but it comes that way in the older King James Version. The King James Version translated that verse, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. Meat meaning suitable, not meat meaning edible. Meat for him, suitable for him, fitting for him, okay? We don't use words like, oh, that's a meat compliment to me anymore. We don't speak like that. So modern tra- translations do us a favor by rendering the phrase this way. I'll make a helper as his compliment or a helper fit for him or suitable for him or in the new English translation, I will make I like this one, make a companion for him who corresponds to him. That's a good one. Companion, corresponding companion. It lacks the, maybe the helping idea of of the word helper, but it does retain the equality idea from Genesis 1, and that's what I really like about it. But the concept of helping is important. The concept of being a suitable companion, a companion who helps, who helps and can only help because she corresponds to the man. That's the idea. And again, we need to ask the question, help the man do what exactly? How is she to be helpful? Well, we've already seen in Genesis 1:26 and 28 that the woman is created to bear God's image, to rule as co-regent with the man. So there's, there's a way that she'll help the man with that. Hold that idea in your mind and make a few observations about how God brought the woman into existence. It shows her unique role, but let's just, you know, put the punctuation where it belongs. Without women, there will be no children. There will be no procreation. There's no womb to bear in which to conceive. There's no womb to grow and nurture that child. There's no womb from which to give birth to that child. There is no continuation of the human race. So, That's one significant way that women are a helpful companion to a man. Without the woman, he cannot fulfill the role for which he was designed. He cannot fulfill the commands that God gave him to exercise dominion, to be fruitful, multiply on the earth. But a few observations about how God brought the woman into existence, showing her unique role. We've already read in Genesis 1, the equality that's described in the text expressed in unique characteristics. First, there's the uniqueness of sexuality. The uniqueness of sexuality, Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. And then that sexuality, male and female, he created them. So when God made male and female, he designed them with sexual differences. There are superficial differences, obviously, what could be seen by outward observation, uh, bone density, structure, muscular density, men are more angular, more utilitarian, women flowing, more beautiful. Yes, it's true. Um, Men are more for function, women more for form and beauty, men You want to send them as the battering ram into any problem and women will come back behind and clean things up and beautify. Okay, that's that's, that's where we're useful. Use us that way. There are also profound differences between men and women, maybe undetectable to the naked eye and yet very real. There's an internal functionality or hormonal or chemical differences between men and women. There's emotional makeup between men and women, but there's also just innate desire of Women tending to be, as a whole, more nurturing, more caring. Men, 
not as much, designed for a different task. Women having much short-term compassion. You know, the kid falls down and gets a scrape on his knee and she wants to run and kiss the little boo-boo and put a little, you know, Hello Kitty Band-Aid on that boo-boo and take care of the tears and wipe the tears away. And the man comes along, he tolerates that for a while, but his long-term compassion says, look, the kid's gonna get scrapes and cuts and bruises in this world. It's a rough world. Let him cry, let him cry. It's not that he's uncompassionate, he lacks compassion. It's that he has a long-term compassion. Got a lot of scars to prove it. So sexual differences between men and women reveal God's intention and his purpose. That there be different and unique roles. A role that's unique to the male and a role that's unique to the female. If you're familiar with the account, you know that the woman did not come on the scene right away. God created the man first, Genesis 2, 7 and then he created the woman, Genesis 2, 21 and 22. So you see, they are created at different times. There's an order, first the man and then the woman. Let's read those verses just quickly, starting in Genesis 2, verse 4. And I'll read through verse 22. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no plant, small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Two kinds of trees, pleasant to the sight, good for food. One for aesthetic beauty and another for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. That's a tree, by the way, for eating. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a tree for observing, not eating. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and then it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are, are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which is, flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's not an eating tree. That's a viewing tree. That's an observing tree. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, we've talked about that word. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. It brought her to the man. Stop there. In what we've read, we see that there is a 14 verse gap 
between the creation of the man in verse 7 and then the creation of the woman in verses 21 to 22. We know, obviously, God is sovereign. He could have created them together at the same, very same moment, but he did not do that. Have you ever wondered about that? Why? Why did Adam come first and then Eve come later? We get a little insight into the answer to that question when we pay attention to what happened in the interval. What happened when man was there and woman was not? Between the creation of the man and the creation of the woman, if you let your eyes scan over verses 8 to 20, I'll highlight a few things for you. First, as you see in verses 8 to 14, Adam got a tour of his environment. Before the woman was created, God gave Adam the lay of the land. He showed him the garden with its trees, ones that are pleasing to look at, ones that are good for food. Saw the tree of life, saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one for food, one for looking at. Then God showed Adam where the garden gets its irrigation, helps him trace the water to its source. Verse 10, God took Adam along the major rivers, verses 11 to 14, Adam becomes the earth's first cartographer. He names the rivers. He maps out the natural boundaries. And along the way, he's discovering natural resources that are there. He's identifying minerals that can be mined out of the earth, put to practical use. It's the birth, really, the seedbed of engineering. So many resources that the earth has, rich with resources, and able to sustain life and help him and Eve to exercise dominion over the earth. All this happens, by the way, before Eve comes into existence. Then, Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So Adam is the first one to get the work assignments directly from God. This is how the first couple is going to fulfill their Genesis 128 calling, filling the earth and subduing it. Adam learned all of this before Eve arrived. We also see that In what comes next, God has designed Adam to teach and to lead his wife and to do that from a motivation of love, loving concern for his wife. There's some do's and don'ts. In verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Massive, magnanimous, expansive permission. That's how we should read that. See how good God is to open up wide the entire earth for them to enjoy. But of one tree, one tree out of the entire planet, don't eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam has learned about all this directly from the mouth of God before Eve is created. She's not around to hear any of this. God has given Adam life and death knowledge in those verses, right? vital to the, I mean, literally vital to the well-being of his wife. It's because God intended Adam to teach his wife, to expose her to danger, to tell her what's good and bad, keep her away from the bad. He intended Eve then to learn from Adam, to submit to his leadership, to learn from his teaching, to follow his instruction. The order and the structure that God designed for creation and for marriage and for the man, for the woman, is for our good. When a man leads and teaches his wife, when a wife responds in submission to her husband's leadership and teaching, you know what happens? A bond grows between the two of them. If you've had any teacher that you have appreciated growing up, someone who's imparted knowledge to you, you find your heart warming to that person, don't you? 
some woman who's passed on truth to you or some piece of knowledge that you just so appreciated in her way of communicating with you, your heart just longs to be with her, right? The bond that develops between teacher and student is deep. That's what God intends here. The order in which God created them reinforces this, sets this up. It forms a structure in which they can carry out their unique roles. And when they practice their unique roles, when they play their own positions, it creates a bond, a bond that God intends to deepen their love for one another and instill a mutual honor, respect, and appreciation. So as Adam performs his role, teaching and leading, as Eve performs her role, learning and submitting, the two of them are drawn together in intimacy. They grow together in wisdom. They bear fruit together as wise, productive, beneficent co-regents who exercise dominion over the created world. And that is God's design. It's a good design. This is what forms the basis of male authority and even things like leading and teaching in the church. Paul instructed Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 13, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Modern feminists have been ready to accuse the apostle Paul of misogyny and want to string him up as a misogynist of everything that's wrong with the ancient world, their patriarchal mentality, ancient, outdated, outmoded, as if Paul's only interest really is in protecting and maintaining male power. So many problems with that interpretation, I don't have time to go into now, but it starts with the fact that all scripture is theanustos, God breathed. <laughs> so whoever would accuse Paul of misogyny is actually accusing God of misogyny because he wrote this. Paul doesn't ground his argument in his own male cultural preference. He doesn't ground it in expediency. He's not biased in favor of his own sex. His argument is grounded in the creation order. He says, I don't permit a woman to Teacher exercised authority over man, rather she used to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. He bypasses all cultures, goes right back to the original design. His instruction is based on the pattern in the God-ordained distinctions between the man and the woman. Doesn't have anything to do with male superiority or female inferiority. We already saw that God designed men and women as co-equals to be image bearers of God. This doesn't have to do with men being logical and women being emotional. Clear-headed male common sense versus female gullibility or any such nonsense like that. In fact, men historically, they have been the ones to introduce most of the heresies into the church, okay? So let's just dispense with any myth that men are just purely logical. They're not following their emotions. They've had a fail in the discernment department. Now that doesn't let women off the hook, by the way. It just says that men have led the charge in heresy. This is all about God's sovereign choice. He created and designed one person in the human pair to lead. And he designed the other person in that human pair, the marriage relationship, to follow. That's it. It's his good design. And when he chose the man to be one way and the woman to be another way, he then equipped them and designed them, infused into them what they would need to carry out their roles. So his choice then creates design and design leads to form and form to function. So God intends these two image-bearing co-regents to work together as a team, one to lead and one to follow. God designed women to learn, as we already said, in order that they should participate in this dominion mandate to share partnership, share fellowship, to take up a complementary role in being fruitful, multiplying, and exercising dominion. Here's a third point, final point. Number three, women 
God blessed you with fruitful influence. God has blessed you with fruitful influence. When a woman is God-centered in her thinking, she recognizes that her glory is found in God and God alone. She understands that her worth and dignity as God's creature is found in God and God alone. A God-centered woman is quick to embrace her unique role. She's eager to learn well so she can make full use of her God-given qualities, discover the elements of her design and her form in order that she can be wise in her function, in her role. She wants to put those qualities to use and to good effect. We're gonna talk in a moment about the fruitfulness of a woman and how she lives her life and what she does. But for this point, I just wanna focus on her influence just by being a woman, just by being in existence and then present in a situation. And we'll start again with verse chapter two, verse 18 of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. That's the first not good thing in God's perfect world. No woman, not good. I think get too many men around. That's the first thing you'll say about that room. No woman, that's a problem. But before God created this woman, before God rectified this situation, God wanted Adam to share in his view of the situation. So God put Adam to work in naming all the animals. God wanted Adam to come to the conclusion on his own that he's incomplete, that he needs a wife. So he names Mr. Giraffe and Mrs. Giraffe and Mr. Hippopotamus and Mrs. Hippopotamus and Mr. Kangaroo and Mrs. Kangaroo and on it goes and, and Adam says what? There's nothing for me, nothing fits me. He's trying to talk to each and every one of them and they're not talking back. Grunting, mooing, chirping, whatever they do. They're not talking. There's no intelligent conversation. I find no intelligent life on this planet. So end of verse 20, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So I think Adam gets the point. All day naming animals, yes, he gets the point. So God creates Adam's perfect companion, verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on, upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He brought her to the man. Like a father bringing a bride. That's how you need to picture this. God formed man from the dust. Just dirt. That's what men are. Dirt. Animated dirt. Don't get on us because we smell bad. Just encourage the shower. God formed man Adam from the dust. He fashioned Eve from the rib of the man. Men are formed, pulled out of the dust. Women are fashioned out of what's already been made and created. She is the crowning jewel of mankind. She's the pinnacle of beauty and refinement. She's presentable in public, men not always. So all it took was a quick outpatient surgery. I'm guessing it didn't even leave a scar. But when Adam woke up, he's immediately rejoicing over this new and beautiful creature. Look what it says there, verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I've been looking at animals all day. Can't see any, any of them with a similar bone structure, any of them with similar flesh as mine. Now I see one at last, finally. And in the Hebrew, I had a Hebrew professor who was very animated and he would say, he jumped up, clicks his heels together and he's rejoicing over this woman. I know what to call her. She should be called woman because she was taken out of a man. He is really excited, really, really excited. 
I love doing weddings and watching as I stand next to the groom and watching that bride make her first appearance in that dress and watching that guy's face. Doesn't matter how long they've been dating, six months, year, whatever it is. When he sees her in that wedding gown, his face lights up. You ever see that? It is sweet. It is, this, is, this is Adam. And he hasn't spent six months with her. This is his first introduction. God created the man out of dust from the ground. The woman, he fashioned her. She's not created from inanimate dirt. She's formed from living flesh. She's designed. She's crafted. She's knitted together with excellence and for excellence. If mankind is the, if man is the crown of creation, the woman is its crowning jewel. She's the final act of God's creative work, the final act. And like fine art, God has brought her out last of all. After he created an audience for crowning jewel, to witness her, to appreciate her, admire her beauty, she is the picture of refined beauty and dignity. And Adam is immediately appreciative, deeply honoring. He acknowledges the close complementary nature of their relationship. And because of the intimate communion that'll form between the two of them, he calls her woman because she was taken out of a man. It's a perpetual reminder of their intimacy. And she's the reason why, verses 24 and 25, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They were taken out of one flesh, they'll come together again in one flesh. The man and his wife are both naked and we're not ashamed. There's no guilt, no sin, no shame. Just her presence here. The beauty and refinement of her form, her softness, her gentleness, the woman has an immediate effect on him just by being there. I just want to emphasize a woman, you women, just by being there, you bring that effect into the room. I know one, one woman in our midst who was used in a church situation where there's a lot of acrimony between the men, fighting, going back and forth, arguing, the temperature, the volume raising, tension rising, and the woman steps in and just by her presence, the men are ashamed ashamed of their action, ashamed of what they're doing. That's the effect of a woman. Powerful. A gentle presence and yet powerful. We see the same thing today. How women are a stabilizing force in family, in society. They bring beauty and grace into a situation, softness, refinement, dignity, respect. They have the capacity to calm tense situations. They can make men out of boys and they can make men feel like boys. <laughs> And they bring the power of conscience into the situation. The sense of justice and mercy and appropriateness and rightness. Again, just by being there, just by uttering their voice. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 1-2, that even a harsh and disobedient husband can be won over without a word by the grace and refinement of Christian wives. When the woman embraces her God-given design, she isn't focused on superficial, trivial expressions of feminine beauty that fade. She realizes that her beauty comes from deep inside, in what Peter refers to as the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Woman, women, love, what God counts is very precious. Don't care a hoot about anything else. Care, regard what he counts as precious. Aim for that. Two primary ways in which women can work out their design as helpmeets. 
Two main spheres of life and ministry where they are fruitful, where you see their fruitful influence in the home and in the church. In the home and in the church. I realize that there are some women who have to enter into the workplace. For those who are unmarried, entering the workplace is an obvious necessity. But if Lydia in Acts 16 is any indication, she's a businesswoman. She is the one in whose home the Philippian church first met. So it's completely legitimate for unmarried women to enter the workforce, be trained for that, educated for that, not only to make a living, but to turn a profit. That's a good thing. There are also some wives who may at times have to take a job, maybe due to financial pressures. And hopefully that's a a short season that you'll be able to take up your primary role. I know one dear woman who, because her husband had a very severe form of diabetes, he He was compromised in his ability to go to work and losing parts of his body bit by bit until more of his body was in heaven than left on earth. And finally he said, I'm going there too. And she was PhD, brilliant, worked at USC, dear, dear woman. She didn't want to be there. She wanted to be with her husband at home and doing the things that other women could do, but she knew that she had to go and earn a living. God equipped her for that, enabled her to do that. There are also single moms for whom working outside the home is not really by preference, but by necessity. They'd much rather be at home with their children. That's a, they've got to go to work. And that's a unique burden that other Christians are eager to help those single moms bear. We understand all that. But for many women, God has called them to be wives and has called some married women to be mothers also. The home then is the woman's primary domain of responsibility. As we read in Titus 2, 4 to 5, Paul expects young women to love their husband and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So being a help meet, a companion, suitable, helpful companion in a marriage, in a family, means to come alongside your husband, to give him counsel, to work hard, to make him successful in what God has called him to do. And if you're a Bible-saturated wife, your counsel will be sound and wise and good and godly, and it'll help him and assist him in making wise, godly decisions for the entire family. In the context of submission to your husband in the dominion of your home, you're to work at home working particularly hard in raising your children. The context of what we read earlier in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15 points to the significance of a woman's work in the home, particularly with raising children. It says, Paul says, let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness. So let her learn, that's the command. Let her learn. He says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. She's to remain quiet. And the reasons why, for Adam was formed first and then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And then verse 15, a mark of hope. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is a, a much misunderstood section of scripture. So let me see if I can help us get some clarity on it. We understand that men bear the stigma of the transgression of original sin. When we refer to the doctrine of original sin, it refers to men. It refers to Adam. In Adam all die. Romans 5, 12 and following talk all about that. But women bear also a stigma, the stigma of Eve's role in disobeying the clear command of God in the garden. She admitted to that in Genesis 3, 13. She told God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She was deceived. She says she was deceived. 
As a result of her sin, pain entered into her life and the curse upon the woman strikes at the very heart of her role as a woman. It afflicts her deeply in the very core of her being. You can look there at Genesis 3.16, God's curse upon the woman's role in sinning. He says, I will surely multiply. And then some translations often say the multiplication is on your pain in childbearing and in pain you shall bring forth your children. So they sound like they're saying the same thing twice, okay? The King James Version, I think, is most faithful to the Hebrew text in this case. Here's how it puts it. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Multiply sorrow and conception. So we see, first of all, a qualitative increase in the pain of pregnancy, but also a quantitative increase in the number of pregnancies. You get what the difference is? It's not just pain in childbearing. That's a form called hendiatus, where it's taking two concepts and bringing them together to say one thing. That's a possible translation, possible interpretation, but I think more faithful is that there are two separate things. There's pain in pregnancy. There's also increase in the number of conceptions or the number of pregnancies. And I base that on the grammar, on the word that's used there. And this is why I advise caution for young parents warning them against buying into the sanctimonious sounding logic from such religious groups as the quiverful movement. Some others like that. There's a iteration of that about every 10, 15 years. There's a new one that puts pressure on parents to have lots and lots of children, disregarding all economic factors, disregarding any curse related stress on mom's bodies from having lots and lots of children. So I advise caution. But the first part of the verse there has to do with pregnancy itself, the pain involved, the frequency of pregnancy. The second part of the verse, in pain you shall bring forth children. That's the verb yelad, which is the next stage after you have the child. Now you've got to raise the child. So God's curse on the man, which follows after this, for his role in the transgression, Genesis 3, 17, 19, that's a curse on his work. It's a curse on how he spends the majority of his time. It's on the sphere of his life and ministry, sin disrupting and frustrating all his best efforts. Same thing with a woman on her sphere of her life and her work. There's a curse on it. Men and women both, we groan under the curse, don't we? We long for our full redemption because the sphere of what we are designed to be and to do, everything about it is frustrating and frustrated by sin's presence in the world. Women in particular, and this curse on their womanhood, the increase of pain in pregnancy, the increase in pregnancies themselves, the toil and the sorrow that can come in child rearing. Women feel these aspects of the curse profoundly and at a, at a visceral and an emotional level, more deeply, I think, than men do. The best efforts and intentions of mothers, their desires to nurture, love, show compassion, desires to show care, provide care, raise the children up well and send them out into the world. That's the very lifeblood. That's why they feel like they exist. And yet their best efforts can be upset by indwelling sin on their own part, weakness on their own part, by circumstance, it's frustrated by the curse, or when a child on his part goes astray, leaves, departs, turns from the Lord, turns on his parents, turns on his family. Is there any sorrow deeper to a woman hurting her heart more than a child or grandchild turning his back on the Lord, turning his back on the family? And yet, as Paul told Timothy, because of Christ and his redeeming work, 
there is hope found in the midst of a sin-cursed childbearing and childrearing. 1 Timothy 2.15, yet she'll be saved through childbearing. Not pregnancy, by the way, but through motherhood, through childrearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, Paul is not saying women have babies, go to heaven. He's not saying raise kids, go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Saved here doesn't refer in this context to eternal salvation. It refers to rescue, it refers to deliverance. And in context with what came before, Paul's talking about deliverance from the stigma of the women's role, a woman's role in the original transgression. What's the stigma? For example, every time a woman is portrayed as a temptress in this world, that's a stereotype that stigmatizes all women who live at any time in any culture throughout any part of history. That's a stigma that refers back to that original role because she gave the fruit to her husband. She's the temptress, passing on the temptation of the serpent and inviting her husband to join in, participate in her sin. That stigma need not remain because when women embrace the privilege and the responsibility of childbearing and childrearing, a role for which they're specifically and uniquely designed, biologically, emotionally, intellectually, a role that many women love and embrace and take pride in and rejoice in, when women embrace their God-given role, if they continue, it says, in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, if they raise up godly children, if they invest in children, if they set them on a godly course, that ancient stigma can be erased, eclipsed by a mom's dignity and the integrity in what she's done because she's been designed to do that by God. No matter how the child turns out, that's not on her if she has been investing and she's been doing so in faith and love and holiness with self-control. A lot of sacrifice involved in doing that and raising those children. A lot of thankless tasks, sleepless nights, lots of loads of laundry, lots of meals consumed and not even receive a thanks for, but just left with a dirty plate thrown, sometimes not even thrown into the sink. Lots of mundane duties. Nobody invites you to address a cheering audience at a TED talk. Nobody asks you to pass on all the secrets of motherhood, but there is tremendous joy in the task. High degree of satisfaction in raising children to you women and not to any man. God gave the gift of a womb that you should have the unique privilege of bearing life within your own body. Then deliver that new life. You know that child from conception onward. You feel the child moving around. You have a connection, literally a connection to that child. When that child comes and the nursing and all the connection, the bonding that goes on between mother and child, you nurture that child, care for the child, raise your child in the Lord. No one performs that role except a mother, specially designed, uniquely gifted. Anybody can go out there and build a company. Anybody can go out there and build a company that's going to rise up and be torn down within 50 years. Anybody can go and work and do jobs and be utilitarian. Only you can be a mom. I don't know about you, but I'm never going to forget that tragic image of Miss Sandberg's daughter clinging to her leg, crying out, mommy, don't go. I mean, what does she tell her daughter? Sorry, honey. Mommy's off to be Mark Zuckerberg's helpbeat. Help him build his make-believe world on Facebook. Get lots of viewers, lots of followers, lots of likes, lots of fans. That's what I'm all about. Social media empire, you don't understand now, but one day you'll really appreciate everything that mommy did. Honestly, those kind of things are fruitless. They end in futility. Their end is destruction. 
What a mom does, fruitful influence in the home with a husband raising children. Just quickly, what about the church? If you have no husband, no children, or if you've raised your children, you can be a helpmeet by serving in your local church. How? Through fruitful influence, teaching other women, and in doing good works. Teaching other women, by that I don't mean go be a conference speaker, I mean individual instruction. Some women are really gifted to do public teaching. Many other women though, man, do not underestimate your power in being able to pass on truth, teaching. You do that one-to-one or in small little groups or just in relationships and conversations over coffee. You don't underestimate the value and the strength of that. Teach other women and you do good works. Women are known by fruitfulness, doing works of compassion, mercy, charity with the excellence of a woman's touch. I mean, look around you at all the tables and all the brochures. You think a man did that? I could tell you they did not. It's got a woman's touch all over it. But first, older women are to be fruitful by teaching younger women in the context of the local church. Titus 2, 3 to 5, older women likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to be teaching what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Notice you have to teach that. I mean, some husbands, harder to love than others, so you gotta teach a lot. Teach them to love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. So women, older women in particular, to teach younger women in the context of the local church. Second, older women who are freed up from duties in the home, it's not time to go out, get some job, earn money that's gonna burn up in the end. It's not time to start getting recognized and seek that influence and significance for yourself outside of God's intention for your life. Women freed up from the duties of raising children, women who are unmarried, you have an opportunity to bear fruit, engaging in good works. Paul commends a virtuous widow to Timothy, and you can see all the good works that qualify her to be supported by the church. First Timothy 5, 3 and following, she's one who has set her hope on God. She continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She has a reputation for good works. She's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. That's what women excel in. All the works listed there. Not drudgery for women. Women rejoice to engage in those deeds because they're deeply meaningful and profoundly significant. Caring for children, showing hospitality, all those works of compassion, all of that taps into God's design for women. It's the essence of real beauty and real worth and profound significance to live according to God's design. Sadly, there are many women today who don't trust the way that God designed them, the way the Bible describes, and trust that's best. They look across the aisle, they wanna do what men are doing. They may not recognize it, but in wanting the role of the man, they reject their own femininity. They express a very negative judgment upon their own sex. Feminism has been at war, not really with men. That's the primary target, but really their war is with their own femininity. They're tearing themselves apart by rejecting God's design for womanhood. They've become discontent with how God created them, with how God designed women to be and they're unmoored from any biblical foundation, and they're set adrift out in a very cold and thankless world into a fruitlessness and frustration and sadness, and for many, depression and discouragement. Ladies, may you be encouraged to find contentment and joy in God's high calling for you as a woman. Keep on learning from God's word. Rejoice in his design for you, his choice of you to make you a woman and not a man. 
My mom says all the time, she's like, I'm so thankful I'm not a man. She means no disrespect to me. No disrespect to her husband. I get it though. She loves being a woman. This is the fruitful influence of a woman when she lives according to the truth of the gospel, zealous for good works. What could be more eternally significant than that? Emma Goldberg, writing in the New York Times, reflects on Mrs. Sandberg's influence in an article that's entitled, What Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In Has Meant to Women. She's referring to Sheryl Sandberg's multi-million copy sold book. She tells of one Catherine Goldstein, 38, who started a lean-in circle with friends in 2013. Three of its seven members were motivated by the book to ask for raises and got them. Seems like a success, right? So she reports about Miss Goldstein, who said it felt like an amazing blueprint for how to think about my life going forward. Again, it's her Bible. The article continues. But after Mrs. Goldstein gave birth, struggled to parent a child with health problems, subsequently lost her high-profile media job, the book's advice started to ring hollow. It's helpful for me now as an intellectual foil of what I don't believe anymore, and I don't want to be, she said. And now, even Ms. Sandberg is hitting a pause. In a Facebook post announcing her resignation, she said her next period would include getting married, focusing on her children, philanthropy, other pursuits that perhaps aren't as carefully charted as the previous chapters of her career, I'm not entirely sure what the future will bring, she wrote. I have learned no one ever is, end quote. Well, that's not entirely true, is it? The apostle Paul says, yet she will be saved. No doubt in that. She will be delivered from that stigma through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I realize that after just a short talk like this, there's so much more to be said, clarified, expanded. Just let me summarize by saying, women, God created you with a unique and beautiful design. He's designed you with a special purpose. He's made you an essential partner in the dominion mandate to enable mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You're needed. <laughs> You're required. We don't get it done without women. And you don't get it done without men. We're interdependent, all of us. You're the very embodiment, though, of fruitful influence conducted in the gentleness of wisdom, quiet dignity, pursued in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. May God bless and encourage all of your hearts in faith as you believe God and as you embrace and enjoy being women of God with a high calling. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the time we've had together this afternoon, and we thank you for your care and your love and your design and how you created women. We thank you for the interdependency between men and women, and this mutual appreciation and affection that we have for one another. All of us as creatures who are dependent upon you. We love you. We want to please you, serve you, and fulfill the roles that you've given us to fulfill. We want to do that for your glory, for the honor of Jesus Christ, and we want to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, without whom there will be no fruitfulness in this life, we ask that you would help us each in our own way, unique to us, to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.